Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Matt Gazarian, here in Istanbul with Ronald Grigor Suni. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. I'm happy to be here, Matt. Professor Suni is the William H. Sewell Jr. Distinguished University Professor of History at the University of Michigan, as well as Emeritus Professor of Political Science and History at the University of Chicago, and Senior Researcher at the National Research University Higher School for Economics in St. Petersburg, Russia. Today, we'll be looking at historical approaches to the Armenian Genocide, drawing on Professor Sunni's recent book, They Can Live in the Desert But Nowhere Else, A History of the Armenian Genocide, out from Princeton University Press in 2015. In the first part of this episode, we'll look at the events of 1915 to 17 and their historical context to better understand when and why Ottoman leaders decided to deport all Armenians, with a few exceptions, from Anatolia, as well as how, in the course of those deportations, hundreds of thousands died from violence, exposure, and other means. Whatever their intentions, and rest assured, there's a big debate over all of these intentions, the results were devastating. And by the founding of the Turkish Republic, virtually all Armenians of Anatolia were dead, gone, converted to Islam, or otherwise disappeared. In the second half of the episode, we'll shift gears a little bit to talk about the ways people have remembered these events and how they've been written in history and talk about the controversies that they still provoke today. So first off, I wanted to ask you about the title itself. They can live in the desert, but nowhere else. Who says this when and why is it significant? They can live in the desert, but nowhere else was a remark made by Talat Pasha, who can be considered the major engineer of the Armenian Genocide, to Ambassador Henry Morgenthal during the events themselves. And it's the only source for that is Morgenthal's own uh, dispatches to the United States, to the State Department, and his memoir, uh, Ambassador Morgenthal's Diary. That's an extremely important source, as a matter of fact. In some ways, I argue in some of my work that Morgenthal's Diary is the template for much of the further understanding of 1915, uh, the way he presents things. The book itself was written uh, at a certain point in time. It had its own purposes. But the fact that we have here a neutral observer, that is, Morgenthal and the United States were not in the war against the Ottoman Empire at the time. Uh, we have a neutral observer who's talking to the highest levels of the government, that is, to Talat, Enver Pasha and others at the very time that they're carrying out a genocide. We have no sources like that for the German Holocaust, the Judea side of the Jews, or any other that I know of. So you spend the first few chapters of the book also providing a lot of history in the lead up to this genocide. And if I'm reading you correctly, you're in a way setting it up to try to provide some answers to the questions of how. How does anyone like Talat Pasha 
come to the point of saying to one or two million people in an empire, they can live in the desert, but nowhere else. You explain this in part with what you call a shifting sort of affective disposition, a sort of emotional orientation toward Armenians in the empire. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about in the late 19th and early 20th century about any key events or key parts of history that you think transformed the affective disposition toward Ottoman Armenians to bring us to the point where someone can say they can live in the desert but nowhere else? Very good question. So the first thing I would say is, and I've, I think that some people have noted this and even maybe critically about the book, that it's more about the lead up to the genocide than the actual events of the genocide themselves. There are about three chapters toward the end on the war, on the, on the genocide and its aftermath that discuss the actual events and, and their results, etc. But it's mostly about the causes. So I was very interested in why genocide and, as you put it, how genocide. How could it be that leaders of a country could decide that it was rational, acceptable, even morally imperative that they cause mass dis uh, dispersion, uh, really destruction and massacre of one of their subject peoples, actually two. That is because it's not only the Armenians, but the Assyrians, close right. Christian right. relatives of the Armenians that are also affected. And what I wanted to trace was exactly what I've called this affective disposition, which in my view is the moral, emotional, and even cognitive universe within which certain things become possible to think and imagine and other things seem impossible, unnecessary, etc. So the question is, how is it that the Armenians, who were in the middle of the 19th century, considered the most loyal peoples of the empire, right. they were the architects, the Balyan family, uh, building the Dolmabache Palace for the sultans, they were earlier uh, the, the uh, mint supervisors of the Ottoman mint, they were important figures later in the constitutional movement, they were members of the parliament uh, after 1908, etc. How could it be that these loyal people, who unlike the Greeks, Bulgarians, Serbs, Albanians, and others, did not revolt against the empire, this was the idea in the middle of the century, how after roughly 19, uh, eight, yes, 1878 did they become the objects of scorn, of hostility, of suspicion, how was it that the, the Sultan, Abdul Hamid II, large numbers in the Turkish and Ottoman elites, uh, eventually in the population itself, and certainly the young Turks, came to envision Armenians as a subversive, deceptive, insurrectionary group of traitors who were more loyal to Russia than they were to the Ottomans. You mentioned 1878 there. Are you referring there to the Russo-Turkish War right. and its aftermath? Could you talk just a little bit? Why is that significant? You know, 1878 is what, 40, almost 40 years before 1915. It's roughly at the time of that war and the very significant defeat of the Ottoman Empire in 1878 and the Russian uh, occupation of parts of eastern Anatolia, historic Armenia, uh, and uh, the, uh, the fact that the Russian troops, the Russian army had reached San Stefano, that is roughly where the Yeshilkoi today, that is roughly where the airport in, in uh, Istanbul is, uh, and there was negotiations over the, over the, the, the peace to be, be established. 
At that point, various groups, among them Ottoman Jews, it turns out we knew little about that, but also the Armenians went out to the Russians and said, could you do something for us? Could you, in fact, uh, signal the, the sultan that there need to be reforms in this empire, that we need to be protected against the predations of Kurds and other migrants and nomadic peoples who are, in fact, attacking Armenian peasants, uh, raping women, stealing cattle, actually occupying their villages, etc. Uh, so there was an effort at that point to reach out to the international community to make the Armenian plight known. This then was the birth of what we called the Armenian question, Ermeni Meselesi in Turkish, uh, and it became an international event. The great powers intervened. The Russians were actually uh, disappointed by the final intervention at the Congress of Berlin in 1878, uh, but in fact, the Armenian matter became an international matter and was for the Sultan and the uh, sovereigns of the Ottoman Empire a humiliating blow mm -hmm. because now one of their peoples could actually appeal to this international concern. Got it. And so moving up in to the more immediate context of World War One, there's the Balkan Wars also where there are really intense territorial losses. The, Turkey basically has keeps what it keeps today in Europe, which is kind of a little toehold compared to what it used to have, you know, stretching as far as out to the Adriatic Sea. And a lot of the leaders, or at least some of them, the CUP leaders who were leading the empire at the time of World War I, Talat Pasha, Enver Pasha, Jamal Pasha, were from Salonika, which was lost during these wars, right? Like they were, they were born and raised there, or at least had deep connections there because they'd spent time there, and then suddenly, poof, it is part of Greece. Do you also see this as a similar way of uh, affecting the sort of mindset of the leadership of the Ottoman Empire? Absolutely. I, I would go back uh, a little earlier even. I'd say during I, there's evidence and there's very interesting material from the 1890s, when the Sultan Abdul Hamid II decides to ally himself with the Kurds, form these Hamidiyah regiments, and talks about the Armenians as a people who are not to be trusted, subversive, mm. etc., and who need even to be put down, to be, and he allows massacres to take place, the so-called Hamidian massacres, in which hundreds of thousands of Armenians, uh, including some of my own relatives from Diyarbakir, uh, perish. Later, uh, in the period after 1908, after the Young Turk Revolution, you can find this attitude spreading into the population more generally, a kind of anti-Christian uh, uh, attitude, uh, upset at what's happening to the Ottoman Empire, the seizure by Austro-Hungary of Bosnia-Herzegovina, of Libya by the Italians, etc., boycotts taking place. Uh, in, after 1908, you have a an opening of the public sphere. Newspapers are now, uh, and journals are proliferating. And so this becomes a much more public idea about who the Christians are, who these Armenians are, their relations with foreign powers. So what begins as a effective disposition among the Sultan and the elite, uh, then begins to penetrate further into the population. And you're absolutely right, Matt, that the, the loss of the, of the Balkans in 1912-1913 is a key moment. One, because 
many of these young Turks, as you mentioned, Talat, etc., are from the Balkans, from Salonika, Manastir, and other places. And second, because in the uh, Ottoman imagination, the Balkans was the prize of their empire. Anatolia was a, back, a backwater. It was a place that you don't want to necessarily be driven into. It was not conceived until the early 20th century as what you might call the Turkish heartland. The Balkans was more important. These are people who had come originally from Central Asia, but the Balkans was where they had their glorious times. And progressively through the 19th century, right up to World War I, they were driven out of the Balkans, had to turn then toward Anatolia, and now faced the fact that there was a people out there, several peoples, Armenians, most importantly, Assyrians, Kurds as well, who were not necessarily Turks and not necessarily particularly loyal in their view to the Ottoman Empire. And so coming up to the First World War, there's a lot that happens in the immediate time of the war, just as the guns are starting to get set off in August of 1914, and those first couple months are sort of crucial. You point out the Battle of Sarakamish in the winter of 1914 as taking a really kind of critical role in shifting the decision-making among the Ottoman elite, that this battle is an awful defeat for the Ottoman armies. They lose more than twice what the Russians lose on this front, and the generals reporting back blame a lot of this on Armenian saboteurs, either in the army or outside the army, or, you know, Armenians are the reason for this defeat. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what goes on in the actual First World War as it's, as it's getting started before the Armenians are considered persona non grata in the empire. Because there's, this is something that I think is very interesting about your work, is that it's the first time I've come across detailed work on finding that shift, that Armenians were in the Ottoman army, and then suddenly they're being disarmed and put out of the Ottoman army, and suddenly targeted for deportation and massacre. I was also surprised in my own research to find all of those things out. So let's begin with the Young Turks themselves. Who are the Young Turks? The Young Turks are the, the top leaders are from the Balkans. They're military officers. They're what I call uh, modernizers. They want to save and preserve the empire. They're empire preservers, you could say. Um, they're not they're not ethno nationalists who want to create a Turkey for Turks alone. They're not Kemalists avant la lettre. They're about saving the empire, keeping the Arabs in it, etc. But in order to do that, they believe that Turks are the most loyal people. Kurds, Arabs, they're a little more suspicious, but at least they're Muslims. Some Muslims are okay, but Turks are better. Uh, Armenians and others are really not to be trusted, and maybe something has to be done with them. There are a variety of possibilities. Many Armenian historians think that all along, from the 1890 massacres through the Adana pogrom in 1909, an event in which 20,000 or so Armenians are killed, uh, to the genocide of 1915-1916, there was always a genocidal intention. I try to argue against that. I argue that the, the genocide was far more contingent. It was the ultimate result of a radicalization of the young Turks and a decision finally to get rid of Armenians in a way that Abdul Hamid had not intended to do. Abdul Hamid wanted to crush them, keep them in their place, make them obey, but not eliminate them and change. Eliminate them completely from yeah, the, yeah, not change the dem demography. So the, these are the beginnings of these things. But, but, and I also try to argue that if there had been no war, 
there is very likely not to have been a genocide as well. So the war is important, not just as a cover, but it does make it possible to have a genocide in a way that earlier was not possible because the great powers would have intervened. Hmm. Once the uh, Young Turks decide to side with the Germans rather than the Russians and the British, right? And there's a whole discussion and maneuvering back and forth. Even after uh, Enver and pa uh, Talat signed a treaty with the Germans, an agreement to work with the Germans, they go off and start negotiating with the Russians say, listen, we'll join you and give up the Germans if you don't insist on these reforms that have been imposed on us in 1914. The allies, the Entente says no, they go with the Germans. The Germans during the genocide look the other way. Don't interfere. We need these Ottomans for our victory. We, they're our allies. Forget about what's happening to Armenians. That goes right up to the Kaiser. And therefore, the genocide becomes possible. And once they have this idea that, in fact, the defeat at the hands of the Russians at Sadiqamish that you mentioned was, in fact, the cause of defecting Armenians, and Armenians in the Caucasus, about 4,000, who were organized into voluntary units fighting on the Russian side. But this is 4,000 in voluntary units among a force of how, tens of thousands, 30, 40,000 Russian, 60,000 maybe Russian soldiers on right. one side, and then Ottoman. So this is a tiny, That's relatively right. tiny amount. And, and don't forget, and this was an important finding, there, there are Armenians, uh, young Armenian men, not unlike yourself, who are recruited by Armenians, by the church, and most importantly, by the most important Armenian political party, the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, the Dashnag Sutyun, mobilized by them in the summer and fall of 1914 to put on Ottoman uniforms and join the Ottoman army and fight for the Ottomans against the Russians, which they do, which they do. And when that defeat takes place at Sadi Kamish, and when this affective disposition is radicalized to the point that now Armenians are traitors, those young boys are stripped of their uniforms, stripped of their arms, and turned into work battalions, so-called Amele Tabulada, forced to dig ditches, forced to work on the railroads, and eventually murdered. Murdered. And I call that the removal of the muscle of the Armenian nation. Now, the Young Turks and uh, some uh, pseudo-historians ever since have said the Armenians planned an insurrection. There's no evidence of that at all. And anyway, you've just removed the very people who might have carried out that insurrection. And then, as some Armenians resisted at the city of Van in April of 1915, the Young Turks arrested the uh, leading intellectuals, journalists, parliamentary deputies, in Istanbul, April 24th, the day we mark as the commemorative day for the genocide, they arrest them and eventually murder them as well. Now that is something too that I had a question about. Is this the personal relationships between the Committee of Union Progress and Ottoman Armenian leaders? So leaders of the Dashnak Tsutyun, others who weren't members of that party but were in the parliament, intellectual leaders, they were close. I mean, you talk about in the book how you know, Krikor Zorab, who is a member of parliament, an intellectual, a writer, a lawyer, he harbors Halil Bey during the 1909 counter-revolution against the Young Turks. Right. Talat Pasha also hides in right. the home of an Armenian. That's this is right. 1909. This right. is this is six years. Allies. This is six years before 1915. He signs the order with their names, the names of the people who harbored them six years ago. Their names are on this list of 150 or so I of 
these Armenian leaders who are arrested to be murdered. The very night before the arrest, Krikor Zorab, this important deputy, was playing cards with Talat at the English club, and the next morning he's arrested. So this is important, not because the incident is so ironic or strange or paradoxical, but because it's part of the evidence that I try to show that Armenians in the Ottoman Empire were Ottomans. They were part of an empire. This was their country. They may have not liked all of the things about it. They certainly didn't. They were asking for reforms. They wanted a degree of self-rule in their own provinces. They wanted some degree of autonomy. But they were Ottomans. They were willing to work through the system, through the parliamentary system, the constitutional system established after 1908. All the Armenian revolutionary parties gave up their revolutionary aims. There was no longer talk of separation. They was going to work within some kind of federated or uh, degree of autonomy within the empire. So I am against, and, and those very incidents that you mentioned that are so curious, I'm against the idea that the history of the Ottoman Empire should be written as it was written, let's say, 20 years ago or so, as the separate histories of different millets, of different nations. Right. Armenian history is over here, Jewish Ottoman history over there, the Balkans over there, the Turks over here, as if they weren't living together in a multinational empire. To understand the history of Armenians in the Ottoman Empire, you have to write an imperial history, which is what I tried to do in this book. Right, imperial history rather than a national one. Absolutely, yeah. So we talked a little bit about this distinction between elite-level action versus popular action. Now, you write that the initiative and initiation of the Armenian Genocide came from the highest levels of the state and not necessarily from violence bubbling up from the masses below. But you're also nuanced, as you were talking about before, about dealing with the sort of popular or ordinary person level of things. You know, you write that the decisions and the permission and encouragement of those few in power provoked and stoked an emotional resonance below. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why it matters for us looking back on this history. What's the significance? Why do we care whether it was elites or masses who were responsible or perpetrating this violence? My view is that it only takes a few people to make a genocide. That is, uh, leadership, elite uh, ideas and actions. The fact that an elite will encourage a certain kinds of behavior and not prevent other kinds of behavior is key to these kinds of events occurring, being carried out, and not prevented. So I emphasize in the book that genocide was a choice, a choice of the young Turks, etc. Once you give the green light, Ordinary people who have their own resentments, maybe local resentments, maybe uh, some families don't like other families, whatever. Maybe they want the house and the property of someone else. And suddenly you're given the permission to murder those people and take whatever they have. So in that new environment, in that lawless environment. In the be, context of war. Right. In the context of war, where people are dying massively, etc., in which hundreds of thousands of people are being haphazardly and disorganizedly mobilized into an army. That is that chaos of the uh, Sefer Berlik, the mobilization, I try to mention is part of the background to how, how these events occur. In that context, uh, ordinary people also act. If there's a weakness in the book, I would admit that there, there needs to be more investigation. We don't have that research yet. There needs to be more investigation of ordinary 
uh, events, what happened on the ground. And we have some memoirs of that, uh, and there'll be more material as it comes out over time of the hatreds, the personal uh, instances, etc. cetera. Uh, one of my friends and wonderful scholar, uh, Stathis Kalivas, who's now teaching at Yale, we were colleagues together at the University of Chicago, wrote a wonderful book on civil wars. And in his deep research of the Greek civil wars, which was unbelievably savage, between Greeks killing Greeks, right? Uh, Left-wing Greeks, right-wing Greeks, neutral Greeks, whatever, villagers, he finds that the local level, a lot of these things, that these murders and, and violence that takes place is about local issues, not whether you're for the Greek Communist Party coming to power or the king or whatever. Right. It's about settling local scores, local scores yeah. rather than the yeah. highfalutin right. political ideas. And it just emphasizes, this emphasizes the need for law, order, respect for law, for the, 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 the kinds of conventions that keep us from violence and killing each other. And once a government stops doing that, once it encourages, and many of our governments today are, through rhetorics, encouraging people to think about relations with other peoples as inherently conflictual, right? And even in a kind of soft way, encouraging violence and engaging in violence, you're going to have these kinds of terrible situations. I'm curious, though, can you just try to provide a broad picture. What does this look like? What are the actual mechanisms of death and deportation? I must say, I never, I never thought and never had experienced the horror of what actually happened to people until I did this book on the genocide. When you actually read what happened, how, how unbelievably brutal the killings were. These were not gas chambers. This were people face-to-face -face shooting, pushing over cliffs into rivers, stabbing uh, in the most immediate and brutal ways you can imagine. And I almost put too much of that in the book, and the editor pulled back and said, we don't need all of these instances. And she was probably right about that, because it's overwhelming. There's enough there that you get the idea, you understand how people were marched to death through these valleys and mountains, and just go out to eastern Anatolia and you'll see what a rugged uh, terrain it is. How they ended up in the deserts of Syria, in places like Deir Zor and Rafa, which today are now occupied by ISIS, right? These are now famous places. Uh, and how there they were starved to death, and in 1916 a whole second series of massacres uh, tried to destroy as many of them as possible. The fact that Armenians survived is quite extraordinary. Luckily, they were missionaries. There were orphanages. The war came to an end by 1918. Uh, and so people managed to be saved, as well as hundreds of thousands. This is another thing we didn't know much about. Hundreds of thousands of women and children who were taken either as slaves, family members, orphaned children's wives by Muslim families, Turks, Muslims, Arabs, Circassians, whatever, made into Muslims, converted, and who survived all these generations and only today are now remembering and identifying themselves as Armenians from Bitlis and Van and Diyarbakir, etc. So the genocide, as I mentioned in the book, occurred on three different fronts. One was mass killing. Two was massive dispersion, deportations, spread them out. And thirdly, forced assimilation, that is, Islamization.
Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Matt Gazarian here with Ronald Grigor Suni talking about his 2015 book, They Can Live in the Desert But Nowhere Else, A History of the Armenian Genocide. In the first half of the episode, we talked about the history of and the lead up to 1915. What factors set the stage for mass violence against Armenians, who were some key actors, and how the death and deportation was actually carried out. Now we're going to shift our discussion toward the memory of these events and how they have evolved into the debates that we have today. So to start us off, I wanted to talk about some of the early reactions to 1915. So today, the debate hinges very heavily on the word genocide. It was the Polish Jewish lawyer named Rafael Lemkin who coined the term genocide in the 1940s uh, in order to describe the atrocities suffered by Ottoman Armenians and Assyrians and European Jews and others. But the word doesn't become widespread or have political or legal weight that it does today until the UN adopts the Genocide Convention in 1948. Now, there are 30 years between there. 1918, the end of the war, 1948 when the Genocide Convention is adopted. So what are the terms of the genocide debate before the word genocide? Was there even a debate? How did people react in the immediate, these immediate decades? Without a word, it was difficult to describe what had happened and how unique the killing of Armenians and Assyrians in 1915 were. Uh, this was the worst atrocity during World War I which was a period of atrocities, a huge killing on the Western Front, uh, the attacks on Belgium, the, the war against civilians, the uh, deportation of Jews from Galicia, all kinds of things happened that led up. But the Ottoman killing uh, and dispersion of Armenians was, was by far the worst of these events and the, the highest level of killing of, of civilians. No word existed, so they borrowed a word from the Bible and the word was Holocaust. So the word Holocaust, before it became capital H for the Jewish uh, genocide in World War II, was used for this, this genocide. Everyone knew what had happened. The whole discourse between the wars was about starving Armenians, etc. cetera. Uh, but successfully, the Turkish government, now the Republic of Turkey, the Kemalist Republic, managed to suppress knowledge of this genocide. The uh, attempt by Hollywood at one point at MGM to make a film on the novel The, the uh, 40 Days of Musadar uh, wa by uh, Franz Werfel was crushed. This is a story of the Armenians of Musadar who resist Ottoman armies trying to get them and they sort of, it's a tragic story right, of right. resistance during the genocide. And that novel, 40 Days of Musadar, was the most important monument and I would say existing memory of the genocide outside of the Armenian communities themselves. Armenian communities themselves tended to downplay the genocide. That is, they were concerned in Lebanon, in France, in the United States, rebuilding communities. That first generation had been traumatized enough that, in fact, we have lots of memoirs that say they wouldn't talk about it. That is, it was, it was about resurrection rather than trying to remember what happened. Now, there were memoirs at the time. There were people who wrote about these things. 
but they were largely confined to the Armenian community. And Turkey was brought back into the community of nations, uh, and there was no such thing as genocide recognition since there wasn't even a convention. Rafael Lemkin was a Jewish lawyer in interwar Poland who read uh, in the newspapers in 1921 that a young Armenian, Sogomon Talerian, had stalked and murdered Talat Pasha on the streets of Berlin. Talerian was tried and found innocent, even though it was clear he had committed this crime, because he claimed to have suffered uh, in the genocide, losing his parents or whatever. It turned out that story wasn't quite true, that Talerian was an agent of the Dashnag Sutyun in an operation called Operation Nemesis, which set out to kill the lead leading genocidier, uh, uh, you can call them, the people who had committed genocide. So Talat, later Jemal Pasha in Tiflis, um, Shakir again in Berlin, and others were killed by this operation. But Lemkin thought this is not the right way. I mean, personal revenge or organized killings of this sort is not the right way. Genocide should be considered a crime. There was this idea of crimes against humanity, which cover all kinds of things, you know. But genocide itself, the targeted killing of an ethnic religious group, cultural group, was not. So he developed this, this term, published about it in, during the war, particularly in 1944, and eventually fought hard to get the UN to adopt the Genocide Convention. But it's a tricky fight to get it accepted, right? You talk about this a bit in the book, how having a seat at the table was very important for, say, Stalin's Soviet Union to make sure this crime is defined in such a way that it doesn't include whatever horrific crimes are going on in the Soviet Union. It's crafted in such a way so that the U.S. doesn't have to answer for Jim Crow or for its horrific crimes against its own people. So... It's a, it is a tricky sort of, it's a fought battle, right? It's, it's, it's a political groups are explicitly excluded, uh, excluded exactly, from, from the definition of this crime. Which, by the way, I approve of. That is, <laughs> I think there are different kinds of mass killing. You know, there's Hiroshima. Hmm. This is what I was going to, okay, right. go so ahead. Hiroshima and Nagasaki are horrendous war crimes that the United States committed during World War II. Uh, killing, uh, you know, and the idea of bombing cities from there, I think, should always be considered a war crime. And now it's become systematic. Look what Assad is doing in Syria, or what we're doing with the the uh, uh, Saudis in Yemen, etc. Right? These are terrible things to do. It's become a norm of public policy, of international policy, uh, but it was rare, rare before that. No, those are terrible things. Those are they come under the the rubric of crimes against humanity. By the way, that term was first used in an international document between states when the British and the French and the Russians issued uh, a warning to the Ottoman Empire in May 1915 saying what you're doing to the Armenians and this was by the way even before the genocide had fully gotten going. Uh, this is considered a crime against against humanity which you will be held responsible for. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 this whole idea of international intervention to prevent crimes against humanity, to punish them, uh, including the crime which is under that of genocide, that specific crime, that specific kind of mass killing, uh, already goes back at least as far as the uh, Armenian genocide, if not earlier. So um, th these kinds of things are extraordinarily important, but I like as a social scientist to think, well, 
mass killing of a cultural group, of a linguistic, ethnic, whatever group, that might have its own kinds of ideology, its own causes. And if we can keep that separated from others, like let's say Stalin's purges, or the more controversial uh, Holodomor, the Ukrainian famine, which many people, Million, seven, eight million, seven, and I'm probably undershooting that. million consider genocide. I don't. I consider it a crime against humanity, a, you know, initiated famine by the Stalinist government, which could have prevented this and didn't, etc. Terrible event, but not targeted specifically at an ethnic group, but more widely at groups of peasants, etc. Maybe that's too fine a distinction for the mass media, for journalism, but it seems to me that scholars should keep these things more discreetly uh, separated in order to more effectively find out why they happen. So the distinction, uh, if I think if I'm getting what you're saying, is that in one case, it's there's there's mass violence and there's crimes against humanity, but it seems like the the intent to sort of remove or erase an entire demographic, to pick a group and say, not just not just these people are unruly, so we're going to let them starve. We're going to let millions of them starve. This is brutal. And this is a tool of violent states, and we need to group this as serious, perhaps even as a crime, uh, as genocide. But that keeping it different analytically, at least, allows us to examine that intention of, to to engineer a demographic, to to take a place and make it into a completely new place, to reinvent. I think in many ways, Turkey is an example of this, right? Anatolia had ancient populations of Greeks, Assyrians, Armenians, who are now all but absent, you know, almost just traces, vestiges. Yeah, you know, I would even go a little bit further. That is, genocide, luckily, don't happen that frequently. That it is not that frequent in modern times to target such a group and try to eliminate it as much as possible. That is, not eliminate to the last person, but to render it impotent so that it cannot culturally, demographically, territorially reconstitute itself. And that's what Hitler effectively did against the Jews. There's no Yiddish culture anymore uh, effectively in Europe. It's gone. He eliminated that. There's the state of Israel. Jews exist all over the world. And, in, and in, there's a in Yiddish Palestine. diaspora, I'm sure, around right, the world. Right, but not that. And Armenians have been destroyed in eastern Anatolia in historic uh, Armenia, and they exist in the Caucasus, they exist in France, in, in the United States, in Russia and Georgia and elsewhere, but not reconstituted as that particular population that was there culturally uh, in, in western Armenia. So I wanted to talk about the development of the historiography as well. So after this this term genocide gets accepted by the UN through the UN Convention 1948. Lemkin's term, after he fights very hard uh, and very long battle to get it accepted as an international crime against humanity, sort of distinct from other general crimes against humanity, it becomes an object of intense debate. Mm -hmm. The Turkish foreign ministry in the decades of the Cold War is kind of drafting its own views on this uh, foreign ministry is taking stances on this history. And likewise, uh, scholars also take up the issue too. I was just wondering if you could sketch out these kind of key moments, either key actors or people or events from the debate in the 50s, 60s, 70s, the stuff that I think you know was important for you in order to make your interventions. First of all, it's interesting that it, these some some scholars and some and the general public come to these things late. 
So it takes, it takes a good 70 years after the genocide of the Armenians to, to develop this kind of genocide consciousness. It takes a generation of, after the Holocaust for the Holocaust to become a kind of publicly acknowledged event, right? And both of these can actually, in the United States at least, trace themselves back to the civil rights movement, that is the African-American civil rights movement. When, when the crimes of slavery and Jim Crow were being aired, and then people, other ethnic groups and other religious groups began to look at their own history and not that they weren't conscious of it, not that there weren't things in their own community about this, maybe some uh, initial scholarship, but it's in the 1960s that these things become much more popular and much more widespread. In, among, in the Armenian case, it's 1965, it's the 50th anniversary, when suddenly, unexpectedly, in Soviet Armenia, uh, where the Soviet government did not acknowledge these things and, didn't, and played down what had happened in the Ottoman Empire because of the need for good relationships between the Soviet Union and the Republic of Turkey, Armenians themselves took to the streets and demonstrated and called for Merhoger, our lands in Turkey, etc. Uh, and so that became something more public. The Soviets eventually gave in and created the monument at, at Cicernak Abert. Uh, but, and then uh, the, the genocide became, in the United States, in France and elsewhere, the one day of the year that all the various political and social and cultural factions of Armenians could get together around one issue, what had happened in 1915, and parade together and demonstrate together uh, to show that uh, these things happened. And those demonstrations were quite a, if I remember correctly, like a, it was a grassroots sporadic thing. And it, it was in Yerevan in the Soviet Union at the time. It was in Paris. It was in Uruguay. It was in L.A. It was just all over the world, wherever the many far-flung corners of the earth that these people end up, people just sort of sporadically gathered and commemorated publicly. Right. And this took an ugly turn in the 70s because Armenians now, a younger generation, quite conscious, uh, some of them uh, uh, influenced by a, an old man in California who murdered Turkish diplomats, began killing Tur Turkish diplomats. So you had a, a wave of, of, uh, of terrorism by people who had been trained or come out of the Palestinian liberation movement in, in the Middle East, etc. Like that, in Lebanon. In and Lebanon and so on. That lasted about 10 years, from the 70s into the 80s. It died off. Some of those people began, those Armenian revolutionaries began killing each other. It often happens with these kinds of... The Turks uh, and the Turkish government made much of this uh, and used it as, uh, as uh, fodder against the Armenians. That died away. And then uh, a good fight was fought by many people. Many people, a good fight was fought by scholars like Richard Hovhannisyan and Vahak and Dadrian and others uh, to raise this idea that the genocide occurred. They were fighting largely on the ground set by the Turks. That is, there was a genocide, and we know there was a genocide, and denialism is a terrible crime, again, that's occurring. And that was important work that was done for a generation. When we came along... So this is like the 90s... 80s, 90s, 70s, 80s, 90s, right? When we came along in uh, the late 90s and early 2000s, we were not going to debate whether there was a genocide or not. That had occurred. We were going to try to get people together, scholarly, scholars, of different ethnicities and nationalities, Turks, Kurds, Armenians, etc., and begin creating a record of what happened and why. And the next thing was Turks and Kurds in Turkey. 
had their own conference at Billy University uh, in 2005. Uh, that led to a new openness. Uh, now the AKP government was looking the other way a little bit and allowing these discussions to go on reluctantly. And then, of course, the terrible murder of Harant Dink in January 2007 made the Armenian genocide a kind of key and open and public issue in Turkey itself, a kind of surrogate for all kinds of other issues that were more difficult to talk about, like the Kurdish question, right? And uh, that, that existed for the next 10 years. Uh, now we're in a kind of funny place. Uh, things are not going well in Turkey. We're moving toward a more authoritarian Turkey, less democratic. Uh, journalists are in jail. Leaders of the chief op opposition party, the HDP, the Kurdish party, are in jail. Uh, people are being fired. We know all of these terrible things are going on. The Armenian question is a little bit on the back burner. Armenians have not yet been targeted. There's a little bit of fear of that may occur. But still, uh, that question is hard to bury because it is now, again, as it was in the 19th century, an international issue. A little bit earlier, you mentioned how, for you, part of the impetus behind the book was to try to write this as an imperial rather than a national history. That one of the, the main interventions you're trying to make here is that this is Ottoman history, and Ottoman Armenians are central when you're studying the massacre of Ottoman Armenians. But you also need to study Ottoman Kurds, Ottoman Assyrians, Ottoman Turks, Ottoman, because all of these various labels that I've just thrown out are also themselves being formed. And to try to study one of them and put your finger on one of them while the others are going around, it's impossible. It's, it's studying one branch of a very large and complex tree. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how you see these changes you've just described. Do you see this coming together in other parts of the historiography? I'm thinking in particular of the Kurdish history of Ottoman Kurds in general, that uh, in Turkey it's been difficult for many decades to even acknowledge the existence of a massive Kurdish demographic in this country. But in the last 10, 20 years, that's opened up a bit. We have a lot of great work. I'm thinking of Janet Klein or Umit Ur Ungur and many others that are Martin Van, Martin Van Brunissen. Martin Van Brunissen, yeah, of a, the generation, the previous generation for sure. Mm -hmm. Do you see the study of the end of the empire kind of creating a fruitful space where we can actually get to those questions of imperial versus national? Where it's not even, you know, the Armenian genocide is obviously crucial to understand, okay, this happened. And now now that we are a bit more past what you call the static of denialism, that, okay, it's it, it's still there. We're not quite past it. And it's still, you know, a fight that it's still fought today. Do you see this as a fruitful space to bring together the study of all these various Ottoman nationalities, understanding better the end of the empire? Absolutely. And I think, you know, if you want to talk about history and history writing as a kind of political intervention, even when we try not to be deliberately political, this is extraordinarily important. It's important to get the story right, because there's so much denial, distortion, falsification taking place. Just look at the kinds of textbooks that young Turkish and Kurdish children, who can't study in their own language, Kurds can, they have to study in the Turkish language, in public high schools, look what they're reading. They're reading falsification, false history, uh, but, and, and they're getting distorted views. So unless we get the true story told, we're going to have separate ho hostile populations within 
uh, the country of Turkey and other countries as well. So, uh, you know, the Armenian genocide is part of Armenian history, can't be taken out of Armenian history. But I think what you're saying, Matt, is it's not just Armenian history. It has to be understood in this larger context of different people. I think of it as a history that took place in Eastern Anatolia in what I would call a difficult social ecology with different peoples, with different social modes of life, with different religious and ethnic backgrounds and interests uh, competing with one another over difficult resources, limited resources like toprak, you know, like the land. And that's a big question. It's been a wonderful recent dissertation. I was privileged to be on the jury of uh, Mehmet Politel at Boazici University on this exact question. And those kinds of things are being done. I must say the development of Turkish historiography is extraordinary. That is, Turks and Kurds working on these topics here in Turkey and in Western universities, including, I'm happy to say, the University of Michigan and the University of Chicago, my two universities, uh, is extraordinary. Uh, so this kind of development is extraordinary, and I don't think you can go backwards. The problem is, while this is happening in the academy, the academy is being crushed. That is, what was so extraordinary in the 1990s and 2000s was the development of education, higher education in Turkey, in private universities, in state universities like Boazici, private universities like Bilgi and Koç and Sabanja, etc. Huge, wonderful developments, uh, this new kind of history reaching levels of world scholarship. That is being, that legacy, that achievement is being crushed at the moment. And in this country, there's an incredible amount of fear, uh, anxiety about the unpredictability of what's going to happen to academia. I hope this Turkish government will not be so stupid as to destroy one of its great achievements, which is the development of this higher educational system and the developments in late Ottoman history. The problem is history is a subversive science. What science did the Soviets suppress? History because it's dangerous to those who live and govern through mythologies and falsifications. Well, there we have it. History, and especially Ottoman history, can save the world. <laughs> if it is not At least crushed. part of the world. <laughs> part of the time. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I'm very happy to be with you, Matt. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Just want to remind you that you can find out more at our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where we will have information on Sunni's book, They Can Live in the Desert But Nowhere Else. And we'll also post up there an extended bibliography of works we mentioned or other works that would be useful for people who want to read and find out more. You can also join us on Facebook and join our community of over 25,000 listeners to stay up to date with the most recent news and conversations about the podcast. That's all for today. So thanks for tuning in. Thank you, Matt.